thankful to all those who come work so hard to prepare to lead us in worship, the music team, as well as the, the guys in the back, <clears throat> but also thankful for all of you. You sounded exquisite today. Um, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 6, um, we start um, the last major section of Ephesians. We start that today, and I think it's going to be roughly four weeks, which could mean six weeks. Um, not sure, but I'm hoping for four, um, which means we're really close to the end of the letter, so probably just a few weeks after that. Um, so a couple months at the most uh, for our time um, here in, in Ephesians, um, Lord willing. But this last section oftentimes is summed up with the words, put on the full um, armor of God. But um, if we're thinking thematically, as far as the entirety of the letter, uh, we might want to keep reading to really capture how this passage fits in with the rest of the letter. So it's put on the full armor of God and then that you may be able to stand. Now, you've heard me say that in Ephesians, we can break it down into two different, we can break it down into two sections. So chapters 1 through 3 uh, is how God sees us in Christ, and chapters 4 through 6 then is how others see Christ in us. That's sort of the framework that we've been working from uh, throughout our study of Ephesians. But there's another way to see Ephesians. This is broken down into three parts. So chapters 1 through 3, it's the believer's call to Sit And so for all that God has done in us, done for us in Christ, chapter 2, verse 6, God has raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. And so we are seated. Christ has done everything for us. So in terms of our salvation, we sit. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Then chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 9, it's the believer's call to walk. And scattered throughout that section, we see various texts and commands for us to walk. But for chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So we are to walk in the life and the good works and the power uh, that God has granted to us. We walk, walking a metaphor for how we actively live. And then this section, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the believer's call to stand. So again, verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we are to stand. Now we're going to cover this or start covering it uh, today, but we're going to stand in the protection that God has given us for the attack from our enemies. Ephesians is telling us throughout in all those various stances how to live in the world. Within our own culture, we sit, again, in relation to our salvation. We walk in regards to our relationship to others, and we stand in relation to the spiritual attacks from our enemies. So sit, walk, stand. And this is important, this final section. You see that first word in verse 10 is finally. It tells us that this is not merely an afterthought that Paul is sort of throwing on at the end of the letter. That kind of attitude would be a by the way. Oh, by the way, the devil is attacking you. You might want to put something appropriate on. No, this isn't a by the way. It's a finally. And so Paul is saying, don't forget. Put this into the front of your mind. Uh, the devil is attacking you. Paul is telling us that this section is vitally important uh, for all of us. And in the West, especially, we kind of treat this passage as more of a by the way than we do a finally. I know that I do. As I've been studying through this passage, I've come to see that I have a weakness, a blind spot in my understanding of things and how I approach, really, 
every single day. C.S. Lewis wrote, There are two equal and opposite airs into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe to f- and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think that pretty, pretty much sums up how the world approaches things like devils and demons. And not just outside the church, we too can fall into air. And so the first air is naturalism. And so living in the post-enlightened West that we live in, most people in the world, not just in the church, but most people tend to believe that all that exists is what we can discern with our senses. And so if we can't see it, if we can't touch it, if we can't uh, smell it or taste it or hear it, um, then it just doesn't exist. Now, we, of course, deny that as the church. But even in our Christian worldview, many Christians and many churches, for that matter, allow for just a very small piece of our world to contain such thinking about devils and demons, giving much more credence to our other potent adversaries, the world and sin. But just think about the Lord's Prayer. It begins with recognizing God as our Father above every thing else. And then he goes on to then correct our priorities, that our priority should be first to seek um, his righteousness or his will and his um, kingdom. It then moves on to daily needs that we have. For one, provision. So give us this day our daily bread. It also talks about a daily need or for forgiveness, and God provides that. A daily need for us to be strengthened against temptation. And then he ends it with a daily need of our need to be protected from the evil one. Now, if we prayed along those lines every day, we would not so easily fall into the trap of of disregarding what might be unseen to us. And so there are many symptoms of this way of thinking. So, for example, in the world in general, just people in general, man's bad behavior is no longer accredited to sin and sinful nature. Also, man's knowledge of good and evil is no longer accredited to the fact that that we're uh, created in the image um, of God. This is the prevailing thought of our day and finds itself really into every line of thought that, that, that people have. But also, even within the church, we don't often think of false religions as being under the sway or the influence of the devil. The Lord's Prayer leads us to think and pray otherwise than these sort of naturalistic tendencies. And then even when those spiritual realities are evil, to point them out and contend with them the way that we should. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That, with our passage here, reminds us um, that these are real realities, even if we can't sense them. But we can take this too far, which is the second error. While some see nothing as spiritual, others perceive everything through the lens of spiritual warfare. Everything that happens is, is uh, attributed to demonic activity and spiritual warfare. This overly spiritualized worldview is built more not upon the scriptures, but upon Frank Peretti books and other fantastical movies that, that list to us or play out for us um, some fantastic scene. David Powelson writes, A great deal of fiction, superstition, fantasy, nonsense, nuttiness, and downright heresy flourishes in the church under the guise of spiritual warfare. Examples of this include demon-possessed Christians, 
which is a large part of what was going on at the so-called Asbury Revival, Christians being delivered from the demon of alcoholism or the demon of pornography. Somehow, the demon of homosexuality and the demon of gender-fluid identity was given a pass, as many of the so-called leaders, preferring to themselves as queers, were leading the revival. When Jesus asked for the name of a demon, what did the demon respond with? A number. Legion, he said. I don't think we should give names to demons either. Um, Other examples of unbiblical views of spiritual warfare. Binding the devil. Jesus has already bound the devil, which we'll get to in just a moment. Or rebuking demons. Or mapping the physical locations of geographic demons. Ephesians 6 is the ultimate passage that we find from the inspired Word of God about spiritual warfare, and it mentions none of these things. So two errors, dismissing it altogether or seeing it everywhere. Both errors can lead us to an imbalanced Christian life, focusing on one to the neglect of the other. We don't want that. And so today, Lord willing, we're going to begin a four or so week study of this passage and hopefully hopefully come to a more balanced view. And so we begin with, the devil is defeated, but... So we'll start with, the devil is defeated. If we are familiar at all with Scripture, we are aware that the devil is certainly already defeated. Everyone's eschatology would agree with that fact. There might be some disputes upon the extent of the binding of that and what that means for us in regards to spiritual warfare or even missions. But Revelation 12, and you can turn there, I would like you to, Revelation chapter 12 is an important passage for getting this. So Revelation chapter 12. Those who were here as we labored through how many, two years in the book of Revelation might remember some of this and who all of the people are, who's Michael, woman and her children later. Does anyone remember? Who's Michael? Yeah. Anyway, we're not going to get into all that. But anyway, now verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragons. The dragon is Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. So there was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The parallel to this passage is actually found in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 10 is one place where Jesus sends out the 72 into the towns out before him, so to prepare the way for him to go into these towns. And he says things um, to them like the, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And then he says, I'm sending you like sheep into the midst of wolves, which is probably terribly encouraging. But upon their return, they respond by saying, even the demons were subject to us in your name. Jesus responds, and here's the parallel to Revelation chapter 12, and I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So that's what is referred to as the binding of Satan, which we see again in Revelation chapter 20 in reference to the millennium. The binding of Satan is certainly one of the markers, the larger markers of the millennium. We don't have time really to delve too much into all of that. Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 9, tells us explicitly that Satan has been defeated and cast down to the earth. 
And from that, starting in verse 10, Revelation 12, we hear this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Glorious Words indeed. The message of Revelation is consistent with the whole of the New Testament. Christ has arrived to bind the strong man, to bind the devil and loot his house. And so Satan has been thrown down and the kingdom has come. But by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Christ has defeated our ancient foe. The demons have been disarmed and so true to the original pronouncement way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent, the cross, and certainly the empty tomb being the mark of it all. So the devil is a defeated devil, but he's an angry devil. And so David Shilton, which I think Days of Vengeance, I think, is one of the best commentaries on the book of Revelation, and it's free. It says, like a cornered rat, he becomes even more frantically vicious, his snarling rage increasing with his frustration and impotence, impotence because he's been defeated. We get that in Revelation chapter 12, so snarling dragon, snarling Satan. So we get that Revelation 12, chapter, or verse 12, second half, but woe to you. O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So come down to you, thrown down. He's come down to you to earth and sea. Earth represents Israel. Sea represents pagan nations outside of them. He's come down to you in great wrath. Then verses 13 through 17 tells us that Satan's primary aim, though, is to make war with the church, which is represented both by the woman and her children. Verse 17. So he couldn't stop Christ from being born and living and fulfilling his mission to save God's elect through his life, death, death and resurrection. And so Satan is angry. He knows his time is short. Stopping Jesus was his only hope of victory, but he failed. So instead, with the time that he has, he'll attack the church. That's us. And this is why we have to deal with him. So the devil is defeated. The first coming of Christ won the victory. The second coming, the victory will be fully fulfilled when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. So the devil is defeated, but angry. Our next point. The devil is dangerous, but. So in the previous point, the but was a negative spin on the positive. Uh, so he's defeated, but angry. This time it's a flip. The but is a positive spin on the negative. Um, dangerous, but limited. So the, 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 first, the devil is dangerous. So read again with me. Go back to Ephesians. We won't be in Revelation 12 any longer. Although it would be fun. We won't today. So Revelation chapter, or, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. 
Verse 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there are two things here, really. Makes them dangerous. We have somebody's phone's just binged up here. Uh, <clears throat> there are two things here. We have the schemes of the devil, verse 11. That's the day-to-day stuff. And so we'll get to that in a moment. But really, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because that's really going to be fleshed out more as we get into the various pieces of, ar- of armor over the coming weeks. But we will look at it today. And then we have, um, in verse 12, um, kind of where the day-to-day stuff is worked out from and in what realm these things are worked out with things like rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. So let's, we're going to look at that first. And I have that under... What and where? If you have that in your outline, verse 12. What is the devil and what are the demons and where is their realm? Well, first of all, I don't believe that the various descriptions here in verse 12 are listing for us some sort of hierarchy where we have a hierarchy of demons being presented to us. We don't have enough information in the Bible to make those claims. Lots of people do. Lots of really good commentators do. But they really don't have anything to back it up. It's just sort of, well, it looks like a hierarchy, so we're going to go with a hierarchy. I think each separate term speaks about the same thing, just in another way to give us an understanding. So remember, as we look at this, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about what's going on in the spirit world around us. We get snippets. So Paul is pulling back the veil just a little bit, but not fully, so we can completely understand it. So I have all of these sort of describing the same thing um, and giving us a better understanding, though not full. So... um, First, rulers and authorities. Now, this should sound familiar because we saw the same wording. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 21, there Paul was telling us about Christ after his resurrection and his ascension. God made Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 speaks of the devil as the god of this world, or John 16.11 calls him the ruler of this age. And so heavenly places in 3.10 and 1.21 is not referring to heaven as the place where God dwells, but it's just referring to something other than the physical realm in which we live. So it's not speaking of heaven per se. So the devil and his demons are powerful rulers over the realm of evil. And have this fallen world as the place in which they do their activity. But under the ultimate authority of Christ, regardless of where we find ourselves in the Bible, Satan is under God's authority. Job is a good lesson of this relationship between Satan and God. Satan could only afflict Job as far as God would allow him. Luther referred to Satan as God's devil. He may be a devil, but he's God's devil. So why would God, after Christ cast him down to earth, allow him to operate in the way that he does? Why would God give the devil a millennium to let loose with his wrath upon the church? Certainly, God's, um, God has limited Satan's ability within the millennium so that he cannot hinder the spread of the gospel to the nations. That's the only thing 
Revelation chapter 21 through 6 is the only place that specifically references the millennium. And all it says about the limiting of Satan's activity is that he'll no longer be able to hinder the spread of the gospel to the nations. And so why would God limit him in that way, but not limit him in terms of how he can attack or accuse or, or deceive or even persecute uh, the church? We have to understand that the story of redemption is not just about saving us. It's not just about saving us. It's also about revealing God's goodness and wisdom and his power to those who dwell in heavenly places. So, number one, God allows the devil and his, his, his demons to deceive and accuse and persecute the church because as the church, we are swept up in this grand campaign of God's to reveal his goodness, his wisdom, and his power over all of these entities. William Gurnall, which has, ever heard, ever heard of William Gurnall? He wrote the book, Christian in Complete, Honor, Complete Armor. Ever heard of it? It's a Puritan book. It's a... It's a exegesis of this passage, um, 11 verses, took him 1,200 pages. I think we're not following his outline, right? Um, but he says, when all, so this is in reference to why would God allow this? When all see God destroy Satan like flicking a fly off a page, the world will be amazed. And so he allows Satan to exert his power for a while so that when he flicks him like a fly off a page, everyone will be amazed. Number two, Satan allows this, or God allows Satan to attack even us, to humble us, and to show the sufficiency of his grace to us. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul, referring to the thorn in his flesh, says that it was a messenger of Satan, and not that God allowed this messenger to harass him, to humble him so he wouldn't be conceited, and to reveal to him that his grace is sufficient. You don't need the removal of the messenger or the removal of the thorn, whatever it was. My grace is sufficient. That's another reason that God does it. Another reason. Philippians 1.12. Paul says that this in his imprisonment was actually for the good and the spread of the gospel. <laughs> and number four, God uses Satan's attacks to confuse and blind the unbelieving non-elect of the world so they will not stain the church or destroy her unity. Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, liberalism, whatever you want to come with, are all heinous in their attacks on the truth and in their claims to be the truth, but they are used by God to lure and keep those who are not his away from those who are his. One author said that Satan is the busiest tool that God has in his tool shed. <laughs> so that's rulers and authorities. They are real. They are powerful, but they are under God's control. Second, Cosmic powers over this, over this present darkness. This, as I see it, is just another description of the same thing. But we see something similar, or probably our minds might even be going there, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, in reference to cosmic powers over darkness. Colossians 1, 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So the domain of darkness, why is there darkness in the world? Why is there so much darkness in the world? Well, it's not a product of secularization or naturalism or relativism or any other ism. Darkness is what the devil tracks in. Whenever somebody turns from the light of the gospel, it's because they prefer darkness rather than light. 
John 16 tells us the work of the Holy Spirit is to cast a giant. His primary work is to cast a giant spotlight onto Christ. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working in your life. You're pointing to Christ. But as he does that, as he shines this bright light upon Christ, it exposes the sin of men and women. So the devil here is likened to one who is the cosmic power over the present darkness. So even when we, as Christians, even when we choose sin, we choose darkness. When we want to keep things hidden from the sights of others, we hide them in the realm where this cosmic power over darkness dwells, where the devil dwells. So the command here, or the admonition, or the application would be is to stay out of the darkness. Next, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Forces here isn't taking away from the fact the devil is a personal being. Well, he's not a god. He's a created being, but he's not merely a force either. So here, spiritual forces think armies, and so Satan and his demons are battalions of spiritual um, beings, and they are as evil as can be. So why do you think there's so much evil in the world? Man's inhumanity alone towards other man is hardly sufficient to explain it. The kind of evil that we see in the world. Think of abortion. Not only murdering babies, but abortionists playing with fetuses as though they were puppets. It's beyond inhumane. Or the level of sheer absurdity to deny biological facts like male and female. Or the depravity of exposing young children to botched scenes and pictures of pornography in the name of education. If you believe that the universe we see is all that there is, and that everything that goes on is a byproduct of evolution, then why would anyone ever be shocked by such things? It's just how it's going to be. It's how we're progressing. Now, the devil loves these things. He is evil beyond whatever we could fathom. It's crazy to think that even these levels of depravity that I just mentioned of the unregenerate are just limits. We could have gone further. We could have gone lower. We could have become more evil, but God put limits on our depravity, so we're, not, we're totally depraved, not radically depraved. Yet the devil is far, far worse, far, far more evil. So the devil and his demons are personal, intelligent, created beings that are powerful rulers of this age under the authority of God for the good of his glory and even the good of his people. And they dwell in darkness, and they are evil beyond evil. But the devil is limited. How is he limited? Well, first, authority. We've already shown that his authority is limited. He's only able to do what God allows him to do. He's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's also limited in terms of time. Revelation 12, 12b, we already read it, but his time is short. So it's between, it ends at the second coming of Christ. Revelation 20, 10. He's limited in terms of space. He's not omnipresent. He's limited in terms of knowledge. He's not omniscient. He's limited in terms of power. He's not omnipotent. After all that other stuff that we just read, that's a pretty good but. (laughs) The devil is limited, which means for the believer, we're not engaged personally with the devil on a constant basis. He just cannot be everywhere at the same time. But on top of that, that also leads us to understand that there is no devil made me do it. That finds any credence 
when we try to explain our sin. I think I've already said that, that the believer cannot be possessed by a demon. Does this happen in unbelievers? Scripture would tell us yes. But even outside the church, that is far more rare than what's likely reported. We don't need to be possessed by a demon to get drunk or to get high or to commit murder or to commit any other sin. The spiritual deadness of an unbeliever is enough for that and even for the Christian spiritual weakness. We're not fighting against a flesh that is dead within us. We're fighting against a, f- a weakened flesh. But even that is enough to explain our sin. So neither did the devil give you a flat tire or make your alarm clock not go off in the morning. He's limited. Waking up late and saying, not today, Satan, really doesn't find any warrant. Does he directly afflict us? Does a demon? There may be times that he does, which is likely what Paul means by the evil day in verse 13. I don't think that he's referring to the end of all end days. Uh, that's cataclysmic. I think he's referring to a, a day that we might face as individuals, a day where temptation would be particularly high. Far more often, Satan is most effective through the influence of the world. And so 1 John 5, 19, on our weakened minds and hearts, he works best by tempting us to follow the sinful desires of our hearts through the powerful allurements of the lust of the flesh, of the eyes, and of the pride of life, 1 John 2.16. So we may not give credit to the devil personally attacking us with pornography or with whatever it is that might be luring us into sin. We wouldn't say that he's personally attacking us. He did bring this into the world, this worldliness, this darkness, this evilness. And so in that sense, it can be accredited to him. There are times where he may attack us personally, but far more often he works through worldliness to get us. James tells us that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You cannot say, the devil made me do it. This means that Christians should focus on their own hearts far more than they focus on Satan. In Romans, Paul refers to sin 54 times and to Satan only twice. In the book of Hebrews, the author mentions sin 39 times, Satan only once. The very least that ought to give us pause and encourage us to reflect on the primacy of our own struggles with sin. Focus where God would have you focus. And he tells you where to focus by repeating things over and over and over again. From Acts to Revelation, Satan is only mentioned 40 times, whereas sin is mentioned nearly 300 We err if we shift our focus on Satan to such a degree that we downplay sin in our own hearts and lives. But we also run the risk of making Christianity a merely intellectual experience if we ignore the activity and the schemes of the devil, which is where we're going next. Very briefly, what are the schemes of the devil? First, lies. He is the father of lies. He is the first liar. He is the greatest liar, and he will never cease to stop lying until he's cast into the lake of fire. He lied to Adam and Eve. He lied to them about God and about themselves. He lied to them about the promise of of breaking God, the promises of breaking God's law. He deceived them about his own motives. And so we can see why truth is where we start off when we get to the various pieces of armor. That's not to say that he personally tells us every lie. He's the father of lies, just like Robert Goddard is the father of modern rocketry. Goddard doesn't fly every single rocket, and Satan doesn't tell every single lie, but he started it, 
Normally, those are lies are passed through our culture, passed through our friends, passed through our families, and so worldliness. But it all stems from him. He lies that sin is good for us. He lies that promoting false religions is good for us. See that those who propagate his lies are even in the even within the visible church. And how many liars do we send, see standing in pulpits declaring things that are just untrue? and directing and distracting people away from the truth. They're all over. So lies, and then accusation. One of the devil's primary ways to harass the church is through our sin, accusing us. But the Christian life, in the Christian life, the devil no longer has any room or any allowance to go into the courtroom where our sins are, are, are judged. They have already been judged, and we've been found by God, by the work of Christ, through faith, that we are found innocent of any wrongdoing and righteous in terms of keeping every law because that's what Christ gave us by grace through faith. Also, persecution. Revelation 12 paints the picture for us, showing us in the following chapters how he can influence governments against us. And so since Cain and Abel, the devil has not ceased to make war on God's people. For all ages, the seed of the serpent has waged war on the seed of the woman from self deifying dictators who kill Christians to the secular marginalizers who just simply stand on the outside and ignore it. The devil has used them all to wage war against the saints. But the saints have withstood and the saints will withstand. Temptation. From the devil's first arrival on the scene, he's a tempter. He's always pretended that happiness is found in sin and not in holiness. In a fallen world where we have natures that have all sorts of desires that run away from God and he's lying and he's tempting us to say, that's okay. This is where you find fulfillment. This is where you find joy. But he can be resisted, James 4, 7. Also suffering. The devil, as I said before, is God's devil and God uses the devil to refine us for our sanctification. Also divisions. Disunity is a big part of Ephesians, especially the second half of the book. Um, a major ploy of the devil. He's the enemy of love and sows seeds of strife. Ephesians 4.3 tells us to be eager to maintain the unity that Christ has already purchased for us. Um, and then in um, verses 26 through 27, uh, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Anger and harsh words and excessive criticism and ungraciousness towards one another plays into the devil's schemes. Also doubt. Doubt is a natural weakness that we have. If we examine temptation in the garden, the devil's attacks upon the truth were not outright details, uh, but the sowing of the seeds of doubt. Did God really say? And so we constantly hear these things propagated from outside of us. And then distraction. Distractions. Christianity has been derailed by many things. King James' only debate for many years, the, the, the um, gifts and prophecy movements that happened, I'm sure they're still happening, um, distracting us from all sorts of things, from the main thing that God would direct our minds to, which is to be busy about glorifying God, to be busy about serving one another, and to be busy about the Great Commission. There are others that we'll see in the coming weeks, but all of these are schemes of the devil. Do any of these sound familiar to you? Schemes that you have succumbed to, schemes that you struggle with. Maybe these come in your evil day when you are particularly weak. 
Maybe it's a personal attack, or maybe it's just worldliness that, that ultimately stems from Satan and his lies. Isn't there something that you particularly struggle with just on that list alone? Then listen. Our failures in regards to these things are not owing to the not having the, the, the proper provisions, but of not availing ourselves of them. And so, Paul says, stand against the devil. Finally, be strong. Again, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his, his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. Again, we're going to speak more about this as we go through this section, but first, it just says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That should also sound familiar. You see the same wording in chapter, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened to what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The first thing that Paul is telling us is that the, about this provision that we have from God is that it's sufficient to our every need. We are to be strong in God's magnificent power. It's the power that is beyond compare. It's the very same power that we have from God is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And it's not merely the power that raised a simple dead man like Lazarus. That was easy. This power was great enough to raise Christ from the dead. So why is this so much greater? Because Christ was buried under the full weight of God's wrath. Normal people are buried under the wrath of God against their sin. Christ was buried under the wrath of God's wrath against every sin that was committed by every single person that was chosen before the foundation of the earth to be his people. Christ was buried beneath the sin of countless, immeasurable numbers of people. And he wasn't just raised to life, but he was raised to rule, to the right hand of the Father. And so our call to be strong in the Lord reminds us first that we're not sufficient for this battle in and of ourselves. We don't have the strength, so be strong in the Lord and second, it reminds us that we have to use what God has ordained to fight this battle and not what we come up with ourselves. Following Frank Peretti is not going to help you. So first, we must be confident in our ally, who is the Lord. So before putting on the armor of God, be confident in the one who is giving it to us. And so just in Ephesians, I'm just going to read through it. It is this Lord who greets us in grace and peace. It is this Lord in whom we are chosen from the foundation of the earth. Through him we are adopted into God's um, heavenly family. He's the one in whom we have been blessed. The Lord's redeemed us through his own blood. It's in this Lord that we have an eternal inheritance. With this Lord we've been made alive. We've been raised with him to seat in the heavenly places. In this Lord we're recreated for good works. By his blood, those who were once far off have been brought 
near. He is our peace. The Lord tore down the laws that separated us. He reconciled us to God through him. We have access to God. Upon this foundation, we've been built as the household of God. It's this Lord whose unsearchable riches have been preached to us over and over and over and over again. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in this Lord, in this Jesus Christ. And so stand. In verse 14, we see stand as a command. Now stand. We might first turn to the word wrestle for the description of our battle, but that's not the point of the word wrestle there. Wrestle is not a command. Paul is telling us that that is already our state. Whether we are fighting in the Lord, Lord's might or not, whether we're conscious of the battle or not, we are wrestling. These hidden, dark, evil realities are already, are already wrestling with us. We're wrestling with doubt and distraction and temptation and suffering. Whether we sit, walk, or stand, we're already wrestling. But to win, we're called to stand. To endure, we're called to withstand. That means we're upright. And so we're facing our enemy, aware of who he is, and we know who he is. And with Scripture, we know his tactics. But why standing? You know, because we're not fighting him. Essentially, the way we might think of it, we're not waging war upon Satan. Christ has already won this victory. We're not called to defeat the devil. We're called to withstand him. He's already defeated. So Christ has already purchased the new heavens and new earth where all evil and sadness and pain and sin will be gone. And he'll bring it when he returns. He's progressively growing the kingdom and pushing back the darkness but the end result, the fulfillment of the new heavens and new earth won't happen until he actually returns. And so there is no golden age before Christ returns. <laughs> We're called to stand in the victory that Christ has won, clothed in the armor that he has given us. So whose armor is this? Is it our armor? No, it's God's armor, meaning it's already been used. It's already been tested and found sufficient for the battle. This is the same exact armor that Christ wore in his decisive battle against Satan. That's why, as we'll see, as we go, every piece of armor points us directly to the person of Jesus Christ. The belt of truth is the belt that girds the messianic king in Isaiah 11.5. The breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation come for the divine warrior's army in Isaiah 59. The feet shod with the gospel are the feet of those who proclaim the arrival of the Messiah and his kingdom in Isaiah 52. God himself is the shield of our faith in Genesis 15. The sword of the spirit is the weapon wielded by the coming servant in Isaiah chapter 49. What God gives to us to wear is nothing less than his own armor. Jesus is not calling us to wear something untested. It's something himself has worn. And he stood, fir stood firm against Satan's schemes, against lust, against pride, against self-exaltation, against lying, against coveting. These are all temptations that he stared down in our stead, in the place with the armor he has given us. And to secure the victory over Satan, he died for us. Not as one defeated, but as a victor, as we've already noted. But with that, 
As he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he and the Father sent the Spirit to indwell us. So not only are we clothed with the armor that he has given us, but we are indwelt by the Spirit to remind us of the great promises we have and to conform us to the image of our great warrior king, Jesus Christ. Still not enough, Romans 8, 37 to 39, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, standing, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Or 1 John 4, 4 through 5, little children, how could we forget this one? <laughs> little children, you are from God and, who, and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't these promises fill us with confidence, with comfort, with strength, and there are hundreds more. Nothing shall separate us from God, not even evil devils that dwell in darkness. Not even death, death has no sting for us as it does for those who will spend eternity with him. No temptations have overcome us, which is common to man. The gates of Hades will not prevail against us. Dressed in God's armor, we're like David against Goliath. We're like Gideon versus the Midianites. We're like Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. We're like Luther standing up to the Roman Catholics. MacArthur versus the state of California, is that where? In Christ's armor, filled with the Holy Spirit, we are more than conquerors. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity for me to grow in my understanding and to focus my attention better in a more balanced way at these things and to walk through this with you in the coming weeks. In Christ, filled with the Spirit, we are more than conquerors. Unless you don't have Christ's armor. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you stand naked without any weapons at all. And so I ask you, I beg you to come to Christ. Reject your present king. Reject your defeated king. Reject him and believe in Jesus Christ whose life, death, and resurrection has done everything for your salvation and for your eternal protection. If you would just believe and repent of your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are so gracious to grant us everything that we need to withstand the attacks of Satan and his demons. Father, I pray that you would be with us the rest of our time in this book. Help us to grasp these things in a in a very practical way, in a way that, that uh, we can grow in our strength, in our comfort, in our confidence uh, as we face, face Satan, world, and sin. Help us to be balanced in this. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have provided for us in Christ. And if there's anyone here today who does not owe, know you, Father, we pray that you would grant them eyes to see him as they never have, ears to hear the gospel as a sweet sound like they never have, 
and a heart to feel not only the weight of their own sin, but the glorious hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory and for our sake. In Jesus' name, amen.